You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. All right, on today's podcast, we're going to try something a little bit different. Right now is absolutely prime time to be out in the woods doing some postseason scouting. Here in the Midwest, the snow is pretty much all melted in most places with the recent warm weather. I've been out in both Wisconsin and Iowa putting boots on the ground, and we'll be back out every weekend from now until turkey season. The leaf litter and grass is all flattened, nothing green has grown yet, and the sign from last year is preserved and really obvious. It's my favorite time of the year to learn the land like the back of your hand, plus observe the prior year's sign, and have a chance of stumbling across a shed or two. For this episode, I've gone back through some of the guests we've had historically, who have discussed scouting well before the hunting season with, and have taken the relevant snippets from each of those episodes. I think it's interesting because each has their own little spin based on the terrain they hunt and their own personal style. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so that I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. We start off with Sean McVeigh. This came from an episode originally recorded right after Sean and I did a scouting trip in central Wisconsin together. Now at this point, what Sean was most familiar with was bigger woods in Pennsylvania, so you can definitely see how that experience has guided what he looks for in this new scenario. Yeah, I was um, very impressed with the deer sign that I was seeing. Like, a lot of guys, that, especially younger, newer, well, I should say newer hunters especially, they focused a lot on, like, buck sign and stuff. But I, one of my favorite things to look for is just scat and, like, how much, not just how much, but, like, over time like older scat starts to get moldy and stuff and if you see that with real fresh scat you know the deer have been kind of visiting that over a period of time which is more of a good predictor than a buck rub that you know a buck was there once we know that doesn't mean he'll be back or that he's is coming back you know and so um i really like finding areas with with good deer scat and i'll tell you man some of the spots i found really shocked me like i didn't expect to have that much you know the other thing though the flip side uh, i i mean so those that's great and everything but i'm also aware that sometimes deer like to winter in certain areas and they do kind of migrate back out of them when the you know when everything changes when the foliage is up and everything so i will be curious you know when we go back in the summer to take a look at it you know how much deer sign is still in some of those areas so yeah you know and that's why i like also to do these type of scouting trips once the snow is melted because if there's still six inches of snow on the ground really all you can see is that wintering deer sign yeah yeah and that's one thing we i mean we still had some snow in some areas there when we scouted it which i actually didn't expect because all the snow had melted off here in iowa um but you know, I kind of, it was, I kind of wished we were there when it just after it was all gone, but at the same time, it was still nice because sometimes it does reveal like certain deer trails and stuff like that. Yeah. So on some of the stuff that you found, and I saw some of your Onyx screenshots on the video, so I kind of knew 
in general, you seem like you're focusing on topographic terrain funnels and similar type of, of things, um, where you're going to have natural deer movement in certain areas because of how deer typically will move through that type of terrain. Um, so are you kind of, uh, trying to bank on seeing deer movement from like a bed to feed pattern or, cause obviously when we're going, it'll be before the rut. So right. are you looking at those type of, um, travel corridors in relation to either a food source or relation to bedding or tell me kind of how you look at that as a big picture. Yeah. So, okay. So we're, we were going to big woods that I had no, there's nothing as far as agriculture in the area. And so basically I looked at the, 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 the ugh, can't speak the topography <laughs> and, um, I looking at that, it's like, okay, how are the deer going to utilize this? And so I kind of tried to lay out some waypoints to check what would be um, preferred travel corridors with you know with nothing else considered, and then when I go there, I try to find the food source. Um, what my experience over doing these map reading challenges over the years is, you I mean you have to absolutely have to nail down some solid food sources. You can't just hunt transitions. I mean deer travel corridors. Because you could have deer trails, but that doesn't mean they're going to use them during hunting season or it doesn't mean they're going to use them during daylight. Um, so ultimately, you could have those travel corridors figured out, but unless you have food, it, it doesn't mean anything. So when we went, I was I was walking those travel corridors looking for food, and I did see a good number of oak trees, but I also know from experience that it doesn't mean those trees are going to be producing acorns this fall and so um basically when we go back in the summertime i'm hoping to be able to see some some nuts on the trees you know and to to say for sure okay these trees are going to be dropping some and even um by late summer a lot of trees do start to drop some of the early the early nuts so hopefully maybe we'll even see a little bit of that and that's going to actually i prefer to do my summer scout for these in august because there are some oak trees that are already dropping and it seems like August is when deer begin to change their travel patterns and feeding patterns. So if you go before that, it's not particularly helpful because also you can't always see the acorns up in the trees. So August seems to be the earliest and I don't like to go much later than that because a lot of states you're opening in September. So yeah. it seems like August is that sweet spot, but I, um, I, it's really crucial to find food. So that's the long version of the answer. <laughs> yes. When you're looking at oaks, are you trying to pinpoint either whites or reds or any kind of other subspecies of those? I am ex I'm looking for mainly whites. Reds, I mean, the only time I see deer eating reds in, in the early season, which is when we're doing this hunt, is when there's really not other good food sources because the reds are more bitter. And um, deer in a lot of the areas I've hunted – where there's a, a good acorn crop across the board, they ignore those reds uh, completely. So it's as if they're not even there. So when I'm out scouting, I'm not, I don't really pay much attention at all to reds unless there's just nothing else around. So I was seeing a decent number of white oaks. So I was just focusing pretty much on that. So that's kind of how I approach it. Is there any kind of giveaways or keys that you look this time of year to try and figure out if those whites are say of a certain maturity level, certain size, diameter, height, or are you looking for like acorn cups down at the bottom of the tree to try and figure out 
if a white that you see now might be producing in the fall? Um, whites are so unpredictable because they they do not produce every single year. Um, but I do look for a minimum diameter for the trunk. Like I'm looking for uh, a trunk that's at least uh, I'm going to say 10 inches in diameter. I mean, yeah, it's possible that younger trees will produce, but I want to, I want a little more confidence than that. So I look for a tree that's at least, you know, I'm going to say like, you can see me cause we're Skyping right yeah. now, but you know, like 10 inch diameter, like a volleyball a, or a basketball type yeah, of diameter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. A minimum of a volleyball is a, is a maybe that tree's only a maybe for me. Like, but basketball that's yeah, that I'm more confident with that. Now, um, there isn't a way to tell here that I'm aware of here in March if that tree is going to drop acorns in the fall. So that's why it's really important for us to go back. And I would suggest to anybody who's listening, if you're going out in the, in like August or whatever, bring a good pair of binoculars. Um, oaks are a little bit tricky because it's hard to see the acorns in the canopy sometimes. It's much easier to see red oak acorns in the canopy with the binoculars but i bring the binoculars and i really look hard up into the tops of those trees and i really want to identify if there's food there uh, if i cannot positively identify it then i i don't put as much stock in those spots even if there even if there is nuts there that i just can't see so um for anybody listening i really it's it's so crucial to positively identify that there's food there because um, you could have all the great deer sign in the world, like in March, but if there's nothing for the deer to eat, that and they they're they're a creature that they, their existence is is bedding, which you know, resting, eating, and surviving, and and so that means they're not going to waste time going to an area where there's not food. So um, it is just the most crucial thing when you're hunting big woods to find the acorn trees that have nuts in them for this year, the year that you're going to hunt it. So, um, that's, so when we, so just summarize basically what, what I've just said in all that is I do like to walk the travel corridors based on topography. Cause you know, that I don't have any other information going into it. And then I'm just looking for food. Um, there's a lot of guys that hunt bedding areas and, and stuff early season. Um, I, I mean, Hopefully we'll be in there before the hunting pressure gets too big. And so um, I, I do tend to focus more on the feeding areas than the bedding areas, but I do look for them. Uh, but it's not like I know I think you you were talking we were talking and you your one spot you picked up on that looked really good was maybe 70 yards from a bedding area. I didn't like um, set up a game plan to be sneaking in on a bedding area that close. Um, I kind of was looking more at transition areas that the bucks might show up at right before dark in that early season to maybe spar with their buddies. Um, so, uh, that was my kind of strategy and not, I'm not saying it's definitely going to work, but that's what I was kind of operating on. Yeah. I mean, I can speak to kind of my own experience hunting a place last year in hill country where we had a really heavy acorn crop and I was running trail cameras and also, you know, kind of hunting that area, trying to be mobile and. I was surprised how far into the season I was still getting trail camera pictures of deer moving through at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 1 p.m., mm -hmm. just, you know, yearling bucks and does just, just out feeding the acorn flats, nowhere near, you know, their bedding areas, just 
cruising and feeding because they didn't have that hunting pressure to really, you know, tell them to do anything differently. Um, I think kind of the, the mindset or the thought process behind the spots that I was trying to pick was that if you, if I can identify a bedding area and I can identify the, you know, the first oak trees next to that bedding area, if a deer does decide to get up right before dark and Mm -hmm. if, if they stop at that very first tree that has acorns, what's to, what's to keep them from continuing to move on further into the woods? You know, they're going to just keep the, stay right there and eat at that first tree that has food. Um, especially Mm -hmm. if it's in a nice secure area like that. Yeah. And so the challenge that I'm going to have with that summer scout is trying to balance my desire for going back in there. And like you said, verifying with binoculars that, you know, which trees do have acorns versus Mm -hmm. my, um, my fear of doing that August scouting trip and getting my scent back in those areas that close Mm -hmm. to the season. And I think, um, given that we're not going to hunt it until October, I'll probably be fine. Just, yeah, just spot checking going fine. through fine. Yeah. Cause I mean, going through there once, that's not in my opinion, going to be enough to, to change those deers, pat those deer, uh, yeah. their patterns, especially in, in August. If I was going back there, you know, maybe two, three times over a week span mm-hmm. or something, uh, I probably won't put any trail cameras in close to those beds. I want it to seem as much right. as possible. Like I'm an anomaly. I came right. in, I left. And that was just it. Um, so that when I come back in October, it'll be surprise is, is the hope. That being said though, I do want to, during that August trip also find some of the more similar areas like you were hunting and you were, or that you were scouting and finding where it is more, uh, kind of open Oak flat type Mm -hmm. of thing with those terrain funnels for the mornings. Yeah. Uh, Those type of spots that I was finding on that scouting trip are easier to set up on evening sits. They're really hard to set up on morning sets. So I'd like to be able to maximize my time and try and get some morning set hunts in that more open type of Oak flat habitat. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I saw some spots that really appealed to me. And as you saw, if you saw some of that video I put out, um, there were some like logging roads that were cut through there that actually, you know, could really make things challenging because it makes it easy access for other people I don't, I, I really don't know. I mean, how much other human activity we're going to run into. So it could mess me up, but, um, but I don't want to dismiss the spots either because they were, if there's nobody really hunting in that at that time of year, they could really be good. I mean, a lot of buck sign and a lot of deer movement in those. There's a couple of travel corridors that just to, topographically set up really nice to get deer movement in a lot of different directions. And I really like those because when you have deer coming and moving from in different directions, that helps if the wind isn't in your favor for the, all the spots. And, you know, it, it just, if you mess up on a deer moving on this side of you, well, if it, there's still deer movement on the other side, you might get a crack at them. So I just kind of like that. So I don't know. And, and you mentioned the logging earlier there, that, that area too is the trees are painted up. So I know they're going to at least some, at some point be doing a select cut. It looks like. And so, um, I don't know how that's going to impact things come the hunting season either. So there's some question marks on it. Okay. This next clip is from Jason Sam Koviak of the traditional bow hunting wilderness podcast. He hunts in some of the bigger swamp areas of Michigan where hunter pressure is high and there isn't a lot of agriculture. He values both in-season and post-season scouting, and you can tell how much of his strategy revolves around finding other hunter locations and then using that to his advantage. So how do you 
like, I guess, where does your plan start when you're, you know, driving your 30 to 40 minutes and you're picking those areas? Yeah, you're looking for diversity, but what exactly does that mean? I mean, are you looking for anything in particular? For example, would you more, would you be more likely to key in on uh, a timbered area compared to an open area, say a, not, a timbered swamp versus a non-timbered marsh, or let's say a high ground like an oak um, aspen flat next to like an area of dogwood or something like that? What are you trying to key in on in terms of finding your uh, transition lines and finding your diversity? Great question. Now it depends. If it's scouting, I'm looking at everything and anything. But if you're talking about planning a hunt, um, it all starts the night before. Because um, I, I like you guys, I'm running gun hunting. Now I'm not using a saddle. I still, you know, I use a lone wolf stand. But uh, um, but it, the night before, if I plan on hunting the next day, that night I'm looking at the wind direction. I'm taking into account what time of year it is. If uh, if it's early season, I want to focus on. I'm not. I don't ever hunt food very often. I do catch. I, I will chase white oak trees and the early season um for evening sits um but i'm trying if it's early season i want to figure out where bedding and food is and then i'm going to look for travel corridors between that as close to bedding areas i can so that night before i check the wind direction figure what that is that's going to tell me where i can go then i start looking for opportunities where the food sources are they're going to be hitting at this particular day whatever you know because it does change regularly with white oaks um, you know, maple leaves coming down and that kind of stuff. So once I know the wind direction, I know the food source I'm looking for. I start going over my stand sites I have, places that I haven't hunted yet that I can go into blind and I'm excited that I've, I've figured out on a map. And then I start putting all the pieces together. And then the next morning, that'll be my attack plan. I head in there, whether I've been there or not, or it's blind. I go in there, get set up and hunt it. But it, it varies. But my my number one rule that I guess that I seem to unconsciously follow is I always want to be as close to bedding as possible. And I want to be in the thickest stuff I possibly can. And I want it to be um, something that is going to relate to what it is their plans are for that day. That deer wakes up with an agenda. For that day, I need to know what that agenda is so I know how to intersect them. But, uh, you know, but pressure-wise, every road is, you know, it's, it's pretty jam-packed here for, during bow season. Gun season is just as bad. Well, I think we're up to, we're almost a million gun hunters here in Michigan. It's pretty insane. Wow. So when you scout then, do you intentionally look to try and find people's, you know, you know, permanent ladder stands and bay piles and stuff? Or do you just kind of assume that most of that stuff is going to be in a certain area and you're just going um in deeper and once you get kind of past that little buffer zone then you're just kind of taking it you know like you normally would that's a great question too and i actually i kind of do two methods because i'll tell you what i scout a lot and i'm running into a lot of people that are doing a lot of deep going in deep and they're actually bringing in ladder stands like i'll look at some of these setups that are three quarters of a mile in and i'm thinking why why in the heck you had to take like <laughs> 10 guys to carry all this crap in here you know um so i do see some people in some really good sets and i'll be honest with you if i come in and i see a stand in a great setup I can tell right off the bat if it's a gun hunter because they're set up on the end of a point overlooking where they can shoot 600 yards. You know that if I know it's a gun hunter, I'll come in here bow hunt it once or twice in that area, not from his stand, but in that area without a problem. But uh, if it's a bow hunting setup and he's in a pretty good spot, I will actually stay out of there and just move on. Cause like you guys, I'm hunting a big enough tract of public that I don't need to, to be there. And if I think they're doing it right, then I leave them alone. The other ones, the ones that I know are, that I see all the time that are on the fringes, not doing things right. You know, you know that the deer are going to use them as a no go area um, because of the scent, because of the bait, because of this stuff, deer will avoid them like the plague during daylight. 
So when I find those spots, I use them to my advantage. So on my map, when I'm looking at that area where that hit that hundred yard area around him, I mark it off and say that is a no go deer area. So I will actually use it like a funnel. So if I got a say I got a swamp edge and I got 200 yards from that swamp edge, and he's over here 200 yards away, I know that now my 200-yard wide uh, funnel just got narrowed down to 100 yards because they won't go within 100 yards of his stand. So I'll get closer to that um, that swamp edge knowing that they're going to bypass him without him even knowing it, but he's a blocker for me. So I use people like that a lot. Um, even And I don't hunt here in November too much during gun season because I'm always in other states, but when I used to hunt here a lot, I would go out there a night or two before the opener of gun season, and I would see where everybody parks their cars, all the tire tracks in these areas, so I know who's hunting where and when, and I would definitely use those to my area or my advantage. I would pick them on a map, find an area that's probably two or three miles square with road access all the way around it, make sure there's tons of tracks all the way around it. If there is, I would literally get out there at four in the morning, get in the middle of that, and just sit there all day and let them push deer by me. And there were times I'd see 75 deer in one day on opening day of gun season. You know, and they had no idea I'm even in there. They, they're just pushing deer at me as they come and go. So, yeah, so I use pressure to my advantage a lot when I can. Um, but if they're in a great set, if there's somebody that I got a lot of respect for what they're doing, I actually will just shy away and give it all to them. Good luck to you. You're doing great. And, you know, I almost want to leave a card there that says, hey, if you kill one, call me. I'm, I'm here. I'll come help you. <laughs> I'm curious. Are, are people allowed to leave stands in the place that you hunt or does it just kind of happen? Uh, it, it happens a lot, but now there is rules. You have to have your name on your tree stand, your name and your address or your name and your driver's license if it is going to be left out. All stands cannot be put out until, I th I can't remember because I don't leave stands up, but it's either, uh, it's either two weeks before the season uh, starts or maybe, maybe a month before, but they have to all be pulled within a month after the season. So they're only allowed to be out there during that time. But when I'm out there scouting in the spring, you know, if I go out there and I scout, if I'm scouting, you know, if I go out there and spend a whole day scouting, I'll pass 35 tree stands, you know, especially mm -hmm. when I'm closer to the road. Cause I also hunt, I, I go deep a lot. But I also, one of the tactics I've been using for the last few years is, because uh, now with, you know, GPSs, Hunt on X, all this amazing technology, and now we're getting cell service in a lot of the areas where I hunt, we used to not have it. So this stuff wouldn't work. Now that it is, there's a lot of people that are going deeper. And uh, so I've actually got a lot of spots where I've been having a lot of great luck being closer to the road. So I'm either 50 yards off of the road where people are driving by waving at me going, what's that moron doing right there in a tree stand? <laughs> um, or I'm, I'm way deep where nobody can find me. Yeah. It seems like there's that, that nice little buffer area where if you get, you know, past everybody or closer to everybody, we had the same kind of mindset out West. It was like, you either had the, the guys on horses that were going in four or five miles, or you had the guys hunting from the road. And it was like, if you could get in between them, it was like, Oh, that's where you found the, the unpressured animals. Same type of right. deal. That is the, the key, in my opinion, is to find deer that are not pressured during daylight. And in order to find that, it's all 100% based on scent. If a person walks through there, whether they're a hiker, a biker, a mushroom pick, not that they're mushroom picking in the fall, any activity, small game hunters, we got a lot of small game here like you guys do where you're at too. A lot of small game hunters that are running dogs here, um, they stick to the roads, they stick to the two tracks, the fringes, um, you know, any of this kind of stuff, anywhere there's activity that's leaving scent on the ground during hunting season, 
that is pressure. So find the area where nobody is going to walk. If that means uh, you got a bus brush to get through there, you got to put hip boots on to get to it. Doesn't matter. Just go somewhere where nobody is and that's where you are during daylight. Do you favor spring scouting above all, you know, kind of when the, hopefully the stuff is still frozen, a little bit easier to walk on the wet stuff before the greenage comes up or do you, I guess, favor in-season type scouting more? Uh, I think not, I don't think anything beats in season. So um, for me, the only time I'm not, if I still have tags in my pocket, I don't scout in season a lot, but it's, the times I do are um, the days that it's pure straight up miserable thunderstorms or pouring rain to the point where you just, you, you can't hunt. Um, I will use those as scouting. I, I'll scout my butt off during those days because they're like a free day because the rain's washing your scent away immediately. Um, so I'll do that. I got good rain gear and I'll be out. I'll spend all day out there. Sometimes, believe it or not, my wife laughs, but if it's pouring rain during the hunting season, I'm not going to lie. I'll go out there with my headlamp on full blast and my head, my flashlight full blast. And I'll actually scout at night. Even if I want to check areas out just because the rains won't give me the free option. Um, so in season scouting is the best if you can do it. Um, I do like spring scouting better than anything else or better than any other time of the year other than in season. Now the kicker here where I'm at in the North, we get so much snow here that I don't usually have the grounds there. The, the marshes are thawed out by the time the snow is gone. Mm. So I don't get that. Like you guys get a lot of that where you still have the frozen ground and no snow. So you can walk on the marshes and the cattails and everything and still have that easy walking, but still see the ground. Yep. Um, I don't get that too often here. So for me, it's usually it's a real short window because it's usually we, have snow here till till usually april and then by usually beginning of may the ferns are up and so i got like a short four to five week window where it's my world and i i try and get out there and do as much as i can yeah that's the top thing even even here i mean it's not that long of a period when you have kind of the perfect conditions of ice and no snow and no greenage you know it seems like yeah. you get cold 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 and all of a sudden it's 50 degrees for a week and everything's melted and it's it's all gone in like no time Yep. Yep. And if I, I want it either frozen solid or not frozen at all, because the worst is that thin ice, you know, where you can step for one step on it. Yep. Step, Punch the rubber step. Yep. Yeah. I'm actually, I've been suffering the last month. My knee's been blown out because I was in hip boots out there. I was scouting, scouting a swamp and I had caught a root wrong and twisted, you know, in the water and I bit it and fell down and the water fills your hip boots and takes you right under too. And, uh, but I twisted my knee up pretty bad that it's been, I've been finally, I'm at like 60% of it right now, but I mean, I couldn't even like get up and downstairs. I couldn't do nothing for a few weeks from it. it I, I like it. Yeah, that, that walking in the marshes, man, I want it either thawed out completely or froze solid, not that half halfway stuff. Yeah, it seems like you burn about six times as many calories and you're kind of busting through that crust every t every step. Yeah. Do you guys have those marshes out there where it's like the, the moss-covered bowling balls? You know, basically yeah. it's like a big bog, and it, under there it's like literally they're like 16-pound bowling balls covered with moss, so you have to step on every one of them, and they're rolling and moving. And I'll tell you what, you walk 100 yards in there, and it's like you ran 30 miles straight sprint. It's exhausting. <laughs> we got a little bit of everything. I think we got the, you know, we got the cattail marshes. We got uh, that thing you just described. You know, I don't know if that's the same thing as, you know, what you'll hear people talk about is like hummocks, but we got, yeah, just those little – little bumps and mounds everywhere that you got to walk around. Yeah. And then we got the, yeah, yeah. we got the hardwood swamps and we got the floating bogs where it feels like you're walking on a waterbed and you don't want to punch through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. Always an adventure. You learn some interesting walking techniques. So when you try and walk deer, because you learn instantly, don't go on the deer trails. Well, you walk the deer trails, but don't walk in the middle of the deer trails because one minute it's, you know, eight inches deep. The next minute it's three feet deep. You know, so you learn to duck walk the sides of them. And, (laughs) you know, always an adventure. That's actually one of the, the tactics I use to try and figure out if the trails I'm looking at in an aerial photo are deer trails or hunter trails. If it's really wide, I always figure it's most likely a hunter that's that's taken that route out from the road or off of a point or something to get out deeper in the marsh because every time he's walking out there, he's, he's stepping a little bit further out, getting wider and wider and wider to try and make sure he stays on something halfway solid. That's pretty brilliant. I never thought about that, but now I'm going to, I'm stealing that. I'm going to use it next time <laughs> I'm out there to be paying attention because the deer will walk right down that trail. You're right. They, you know, and they follow the same steps with no problem, but you're right. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. You can tell some of them are really obvious. When you look at the, the aerial photos. It's like, ah, oh, it doesn't look like a deer trail to me. It's the one known. It's the given, especially in the big woods. You know, if you're hunting, like I, again, I hunt a lot of different states. And when I'm in Kansas, when I'm in Missouri, it's so easy to identify where they're going to, where food is, where bedding is, where the funnels they have to travel through. I mean, classic funnels. I mean, pinch points, things like that. So obvious they jump right out at you in a lot of those areas. Here in the big woods, you they're they're more on a micro level. They're much harder to see and find. And uh, um, you, you just, you know, like I said, sometimes you're scratching your head going how you know i mean you're saying you could have an area i could i could drive down an old two track four-wheel drive two track and in the winter time and i'll see 25 deer trails cross it in a hundred yard period there'll be 25 trails they cross that zone you look at it and you go god i i can't figure out how to hunt that there's no way you know each trail is you know 20 30 yards apart from each other there's no way for me to do that but all i have to do is stop right there pull it up on my phone look at what's there and go oh you know what once they get here and they're going to try and round a bend of that bog they're all going to merge together i get out i I drive up another 500 yards park my truck sneak in the back way i hit that bog right there and sure enough every single trail merges right there and it looks like a cattle trail coming through there throw my stand up kill deer call today you know so it's all um looking for something that is going to narrow them down because like you said they meander they wander they they go they do whatever they want to do here it's not quite the same as is ag land and farmland and, and you know that kind of stuff they can do whatever they want same cover type everywhere this next clip is from my discussion with jared schaefer we pick a specific example where jared did some postseason scouting to find a specific buck bed in the appalachian hills which allowed him to set up on and kill that buck the following season take me back to one of the first deer that you killed using those beast tactics, was it something that you kind of pre-scouted and found a bed or were you just kind of assuming that the deer were bedding in a certain area based on what the topo lines look like? Yeah. So I started rooting into the beast tactics back in like 2015 and kind of started scouting and, you know, basing, you know, my scouting tactics based off that while I was learning there. And actually found, you know, I had an area that I'd killed several bucks out of, and I never really knew why. And then when I kind of started learning about wind-based bedding and, you know, where they would bed on this certain hills, it all kind of clicked for me. And I kind of realized at that point why they were bedding there. So I dove into that area a little bit deeper, and I actually found the main bed that, you know, immature areas can use this bed. It just sets up perfect for it. So... I located this bed, and I always accessed this area from the wrong direction. You know, I really wasn't taking wind and thermals into account. So 
I found this bed. I started looking, you know, at a different access route and I figured out a way to get in there. So that summer I ran a camera not too far from that bed, maybe a hundred yards or so in a spot where I could check it fairly easily. So I was in like three or four different bucks using this bed area. And I think it was my very first sit in there with the new access route, you know, different tree that I've never hunted before. I ended up killing still my oldest buck to date. He's five and a half years old. Um, I killed him October 1st. I believe that's when it was October 1st. First sit in there, he, he got up out of that exact bed and uh, fed right past me and I was able to, to kill him. And after that, I mean, it was just, it was like a light bulb just switched off, you know, that actually target a specific buck bed and kill him in the early season. So it was, it was a pretty cool hunt and still one of my favorites to this day. Yeah, that's super cool. When you found that bed, can you describe it? You said, you know, it was set up pretty much perfectly. Was it right on kind of a, a knob? Was it just one big main bed or was there a couple beds that were, you know, within a few yards of each other that he could move to? Uh, just kind of give me a, a picture and, and explain it a little bit more. Okay, so this it's basically the side of a ridge, and the ridge runs from, let's say, say west to east. And on the northern side of this ridge, there's a kind of a knob on the side, you know, up up toward the up toward the top of the ridge. Um, and on that knob is actually some mountain laurel. So the ridge is mainly hardwoods, and then you've got this little knob up for a south southwest wind and one patch of laurel over there it's about three acres i would say and main bed on in that laurel is right on the edge of it where he can there's a little flat spot and there's a bed right there where he can see you know down the hill in front of him wind coming over his back and then you know if he sees anything you know below him he can turn around and go back up in the laurel thicket and he's and he's gone so there's the, the main bed was right there on the edge. And then as you go back farther into the thicket, there's, you know, some satellite bedding that does a smaller buck use. But it seemed to me like the, the biggest area is using that bed where he can see out from the edge of it looking down, down the ridge. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not a very big area. It's just, you know, that's the only good pocket of cover on the side of that ridge. And, and it sets up for our dominant wind, which is southwest in the, in the early season. So I think that's why it's good. Hmm. Yeah, it does sound like it sets up pretty well. So he can see out beneath him and in front of him and then get that wind blown from over the top through that thicket. Now we move on to some clips from Ricky Kohler. Most of this focuses on his out-of-state scouting strategies for Iowa and North Dakota. He brings a slightly different concept to the table here in that sometimes your limited time in the spring can be well spent trying to secure new ground instead of just simply being out in the woods in the same old areas. So then when you're when you're hunting around here, it sounds like you have, is it family land or just land that you have permission on? Um, yep, just permission land. Um, <clears throat> I actually do a ton of door knocking. Like I do it, I'd say that you can see I've found a lot of sheds, <clears throat> but I've kind of switched gears to where rather than shed hunting, I'm spending that because I don't like I don't have that much time on weekends or after work for an hour or two. I'm spending that time actually knocking on doors, trying to get in, 
on places close to the metro and that kind of stuff. And then uh, I get on as many places as I can. I put cameras out, and then I just whittle them down to the places where I want to concentrate. And um, when I hunt out of state, like for Iowa, I do the same kind of thing. Like I actually did a couple years ago, one of the first couple years I hunted Iowa, I used um, Onyx and searched you know, based on like river systems and the yep. zone that I wanted to hunt, I found 130 different um, farmers or people that I wanted to contact, made a big Excel spreadsheet. Then I spent some time kind of crafting up what I wanted to say to them or kind of scripted it sure. out. And then I called 130 different farmers and just explained, you know, hey, my, my family or my in-laws live down in Iowa. We go down every year. I'm only going to be hunting for about a week during the ruts. Uh, understand that you got some good-looking deer uh, area, and you likely probably gun hunt it or, or maybe even hunt it yourself. I'm looking to kind of bounce around between a couple different properties and was wondering if it would be all right to hunt your, your property maybe two, three days max. And I had pretty good success. I think on the 130 people I called, I got on 12 different farms. Yeah. And then I went down in the summer and just put cameras out everywhere. And then came back, checked the cameras late summer, determined what areas had the, you know, the best deer numbers and densities and obviously the the bigger bucks. And then I concentrated on those six farms when we went down and hunted. Do you feel like it's, and I mean, obviously if you got a dozen, like that's enough. Do you feel like you almost get too many? Like you, you call too many places? Like where it's going to be hard to maintain relationships with that many landowners, or do you feel like it's not really that big of a deal? And once you find the best out of those twelve, those are probably the ones you're going to go back to anyway. Yeah, that's like, I would say relationships are super key when you do get in on a, a private piece to try to keep them up. One thing about Iowa is they uh, they know that you're not going to be back for a while, you know, because it takes a few years to draw. Yep. So it's not as pertinent to be have, try to keep up those relationships or or got, go out of your way. So <clears throat> I, I try to get on as many as possible. And then I hunt a ton of public too. So I I probably, even though I got on those farms, I hunted half public, half private. Um, and both uh, my buddy and I did shoot nice deer. And are you hanging cameras on the public too or just the private? I do hang cameras on public, yeah. Yep, cheap ones. Yeah. <laughs> and I put them up, uh, you know, 10 or 12 feet, bring yeah. in a stick, hang them up angle them down um just on trails and then come back and check them i camel them a little bit if need be if they really stand out but are you basically trying to get as much intel as you can from the road before you ever step out of the vehicle or are there some spots where you look at the map and say i want to check out the spot regardless of of what i see just driving around and get some boots on the ground to to see what's out there in terms of sign yeah so the latter part of that where i'm want to see what's out there, want to go check it out. I'll go out and shed hunt in North Dakota um, and hit a bunch of the, the cover I find on maps, uh, you know, ahead of time to see what kind of signs in there so I kind of know how the, the lay of the ground is. Yep. Um, but in season, I'm doing a ton of, like, MRI or most recent information. So uh, you know that intra-Iowa, again, this year, third year. Um, but I still go down to scout it every, every winter. And I don't know if you can see over there on the wall, but I've got like a maps. Know, 48 inch map of all the public that I hit with yep. a lot of, you know, like pins on where I've been and where. So I, I go down every 
spring and I break it apart and hunt, hit different sections, mark it all up on Onyx. Another great app is GPS Kit. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's an older I app. I think I have. Um, what I like about that is it works like Onyx, um, but you can take a picture of what you see and then mark it. Oh, sure. And then you can also export it into um, Google Earth. So I like to do that, and then I'll go into Google Earth, and you can change the, um, you know, the year, obviously, of the terrain you're looking at. So you can pick not only the time of year and the shadow of the sun, but you can do the year or two, and you can pick a year where you can see all the different transition lines of cover, which has helped me out a lot. And then you can overlay all your trails that you've walked, all your pictures you've seen. And then when I'm hunting that hilly stuff, I'll go on and you can change um, uh, like an elevation thing in Google Earth where it like multiplies or yep. magnifies the elevation. So when you spin that Google Earth, you can really see like, okay, here's the two knobs that I think most of the deer live on. Here's two hogbacks coming down to the main river. Um, and some of the areas I'll key in on is I'll find that really steep terrain and I'll find like some big, um, I call them knobs or flats that's where a lot of the does like to hang out they'll hang it all hang out on those flats the bucks usually will bet out on the points maybe down the hogback a little bit mm -hmm. but they all kind of funnel out to the, the feed in the evening so i like to get in between uh, a couple of the biggest ones i can find on public that are hard to get to meaning hard to get to like parking spots are a long ways away and if they do come in that way they're going to scare every deer out yep um, and then i like to find like some big deep ravines to kind of sit up on the top so you got your you know, a top field funnel type, or if you can get down along the river off a, a real steep hill and on the other side of the river, it's flat. Yep. You're in a good spot. If you've got the wind coming from the hill going that way, cause you're not going to see as much of the swirling winds. If you're down in a river bottom and you've got high ground above you on one side and both sides, you know what I mean? So like if I can find a pretty steep, hill that comes down to a river that's got a knob north of me knob south of me i can get on a trail that a buck might be cruising and you know down in the bottom with let's say it's a, a north south river with a west wind and on the east side of the river it's just a flat cornfield for a mile yeah there's a good chance that my wind especially if you're hunting in the morning your thermals are going to go up and the wind's going to kick you over and you're not going to get a bunch of that, that tumbling, tumbling or um when coming back where the deer are going to smell you because that's always one of the biggest issues hunting low in the hills is dealing with the wind yeah absolutely i mean you can you know they've got um you look like where a bunch of ravines dumped down and you've got like that thermal funnel down there where bucks always like to have big scrapes yep and they they, they like being down there because they can smell everything it's all swirling down in there but if you can find a steep bluff and on the other side of the river you've got something pretty flat you can come in from the river like the spot where I shot, uh, that one over there was public Iowa. And my buddy and I, my buddy and I um, in the summer drove down, we got permission from a landowner to launch a canoe on their property. Then we drove down two miles and put a bike in the woods on public on the other side of the river. And then we canoed down, went into this property from the river set up on a kind of what I was explaining here where it was flat on one side and not on the other, set up some spots and cameras. And then we rode the canoe down, grabbed the bike. One guy biked back, got the car, got the canoe. So we did that to 
as like a, a way to access it because there's only one parking lot to the whole property and it was a super long property and it had a lot of hills so anybody that had to, that came in would have to jog all the top you know every field edge corner hit like a main trail like a horse trail come all the way down to the bottom yep. and every deer in there is pretty much going to be aware that you're there yeah so it's it's you know access has been pretty key with that deer i found him by doing the canoe trip we planned on doing it in november but we got an east wind and i'm like i got an east wind i know that buck's living in this property i set up on one of those um, um field top funnels with the ditch with the east wind blowing out into the field between two knobs and he came cruising through at eight o'clock this next section is for my first discussion with paul putera he talks about older bucks bedding and what he can learn from them during scouting, be it this time of year or in season. In addition, Paul talks about finding sheds and the large amount of intel that can come from finding them. Yep, I, I use Onyx now, and I'm I, I literally I mark everything, and I, I I color coordinate it different different colors for like different age class deer and stuff. I'm like, oh, the all the big bucks I know is market black, you know, and okay, this is probably a three-and-a-half-year-old. I mark it a different color, use purple or something, you know. And then I can kind of, like, look, and it's nice to have that when you mark everything because you can't remember everything you see, you know. So you can pull that map out and be like, wow, this section of the woods is all black, big buck sign, and this section is purple, and it's all young buck, you know, so... You, you'll like all of a sudden you'll start to see like this pattern like of where the bigger bucks are using different spots in that woods and then you can almost take and draw a line between all those icons and figure out how they're traveling through an area yep do you find there's a mix sometimes where you got like there could be you know deer of all particular age groups running a particular area at the same time Oh yeah, there, uh, there's times when that happens, but typically the, I find the bigger bucks have their more specific places, and the younger deer just kind of they're love drunk and they don't really know what they're doing, and they'll just kind of randomly lay down sign, you know. But mature bucks are very deliberate on what they do. They don't just walk through the woods and rub trees. Like if they they make a rub, it's probably because there's a doe coming out right there. They make a scrape. There's an intersection where multiple deer travel corridors pass over each other. You know, they're not just laying that sign out for no reason. They're always doing it on purpose. And we talked about a spot earlier where, you know, I had found a bed on the, the edge of one of these swamps. It's kind of a little depression in a big woods area. And when we were talking through it, it's like, yeah, there's, you know, with the west, northwest wind, you know, commonly coming through that area. You know, you think about like where this other like, you know, travel corridor and scrape line was, it's like right downwind. So he can just sit there in the bed on the edge of that swamp and he can just sit there and smell any deer going up and using that, uh, using that travel corridor to hit that scrape line. It just made a lot of sense. Yep. And a lot of times they'll put themselves in a position where they can see their scrapes. And that's even more difficult because you're, you're like, oh, this is a good scrape. Well, did I just bust them? Was he sitting there watching me? Because I see that a lot, especially if you're hunting not swamps, but you're hunting hills or something. You'll find like a scrape down low, and then you'll walk up the ridge, and there'll be a bed right above it looking at it. So 
it's something you got to kind of make a mental note on when you when you find these big scrapes is a lot of times they're right next to them hmm do you find one type of habitat to be easier than the other like hills versus you know flatter swampy stuff um not really i i prefer the swamps like i like i like hunting swamps i've always shot a lot of deer in swamps but i mean if there's a giant buck in the hills i'm gonna be hunting the hills yeah you know i i've come to the conclusion like there there's situations where wind bedding is very specific but a lot of times in these spots like you just find these big round beds you know it's like okay this deer is probably facing 20 different directions in the same place you know and it's I, I almost like i feel like the larger bucks almost want to focus on visual bedding in a lot of situations unless like you're like out in the early season in called tall cattails and then they're not as much but they they like to know what's going on you know that's why like if you find like a series of doe beds you're like you're like okay the buck isn't bedding here this is all those you know that buck is probably betting on the sides of it or on the back or something. He's going to be putting himself in a situation where he can monitor all the other deer, you know, because if somebody comes walking into that spot and busts up the deer, that buck is sitting out on the side where he's not vulnerable and he can stand up and go, Oh, what's going on over here? Oh, something's spooking all my does. Okay. What's, what's up with that? And then he could figure it out, you know, because the last thing a buck wants to do is just bolt out of a spot. When you, when you bump a deer, like, they usually don't go nowhere if you should bump a big buck. They'll 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 run fifty hundred yards and they'll stop. You know, and the mistake people will do is they don't stop too. You know, so if you, if you stand up a buck out of its bed, freeze. And I mean, you might have to wait half an hour, and all of a sudden you hear him walking. You're like, okay, oh, okay, I hear him slipping away now. Which direction is he going? And then you can get right back on him and put that pressure right on him again and try to cut him off or set up on him where he's going to come out now when, when you find sheds in the in the in the spring yep or in late season how bleached out are they um usually well i guess not not usually too much um because that if they're not bleached out from the sun by that time of year they, they're looking for overhead cover they got to be having something that's doing it yeah, well, I guess now that I think about it, yeah. the um, some of those places where I find those sheds, you know, they're like laying in water by the time I find them in the in the spring. So you know, kind of assume, okay, well, mm -hmm. it's been sitting in water, you know, being bleached by the sun since whatever this thing dropped. But you know, I suppose it's possible that that could just be from you know, give me a clue also of the yeah. locations it, that the deer been spending their late if season. You can, if you could find them when they're like still bloody when they come off, it's like a great it's a great indicator. You know, because the sun, you, you get a buck that lives in a cattail marsh, usually the sheds you find are more bleached out than, like, say, you find a sheds in, like, more piney, huh. like, big big wood forest. And it, it almost tells you, like, okay, well, this deer is living in more shaded areas, you know, just because of the, the light transmission on the antler and how it changes its color. Yeah, that makes sense. So. So when you, when you find a shed, you could really, like, if you're trying to target a specific buck or something, like, you'll find his shed and be like, wow, he's got a really dark antler. If you get lucky enough to find one that falls off, 
You're like, wow, this antlers are really dark. Well, this duck, this deer is probably living in a very dark area where he's got a lot of overhead cover versus you find a bleached out shed. Okay, this duck, this buck is probably living in a more sun-exposed area. Yeah, I'll have to pay more attention to that when I start finding sheds. Usually by the time I find them, it's like March or April, and they've been on the ground for, you know, several weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes when you find them, when they first fall off, they're like a gold mine of information. Yep, and that and finding sheds will help you a lot in late season. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're not finding sheds, you're probably not in the right spot for late season. Right, right. Yeah, you've got to be finding sheds in those areas. You know, it could be the best-looking spot ever, but if it doesn't have sheds in it, it's not holding the right things for that big buck later on because once once, once the rut is over, that thing is looking for food. I mean, he's starving. You know, he's so run down. He just All he wants to do is lay there and eat. You know, so you got to find those spots where he can do that. Yeah, and I'm... I'm thinking in my head of a couple places where I found some very sizable sheds in areas that have a lot of that type of cover I've been talking about earlier, where, you know, like waist high grass, dogwood, alders. Mm-hmm. It's like they must, if they're leaving the sheds there and you're finding it, it's not just like a random one. Like you find, you know, multiple from different deer in that type of habitat. That's probably a clue right there that late season, you know, that's the shift they're, they're doing. Yeah. And if, if you want to have big, bucks in big woods areas late season you got to be finding those sheds like, a lot of the mature bucks like they don't want to travel you know they don't want to travel they want to they want to be in a place where they can just chill out and eat and relax you know a lot of times i find like for me it's a lot of drainages in my areas like they love to hang out in the big drainages because they got that food down at the bottom of the drainage and they can climb up the wall of the big drainage and sit up there in bed. Yeah, and then they just they can just live and not have to cover but a couple hundred yards every day. Yep, and that's what people are like. Oh, these bucks are all vanished. They're like after the rut and stuff, it's they didn't vanish. They just they went to their places where they got to recover. And like they these mature animals, they find places that are like these recovery zones where they can go and seek those out. And for the longest time when I was younger, I used to always think, oh, the big bucks climbed out of the mountains and went down to the agricultural areas. But I started to really learn. I'm like, well, that's not true. I was just looking in the wrong spot. And now, like, I have spots in these mountains around me that every spring I can go in there and I find a dozen sheds. Like, in big woods. Like, here here I had this buck that was four miles down the ridge, and I had him on camera during the rut and early season September even like and then all the bucks all the giant bucks that I had on camera all went to the same place during the winter huh you know so if you can find those spots where those big bucks can live in those big woods areas you'll find all of them late season next we have a clip from the tethered round table discussion from Andy May like Ricky Andy scouts Iowa every year even when he doesn't draw and there's definitely something to take away here from the dedication that it can take to become ultra consistent. So what are you doing to prep for that Iowa hunt? So I already went down there. I, I, I go down to Iowa every year, even when I don't. Every even, year? Every year. Yep, because I, I, I really like scouting down there. So I go down. I've pretty much walked every piece of property in my zone um, that's public. So nice. I know them 
man, that's smart. Yeah, I know yep. them. I, you know, I just, I'll take a two-day trip, a three-day trip, but I have a lot of money invested in this, into this tag. So I want to put myself in the, in the best type of situation as possible. So I, I, I like to f- scout all those areas and really narrow down to like two or three particular areas where I have the most confidence in. So any, any out-of-state hunt, if I can, I like to get boots on the ground. I really like to do that especially if it's a rut hunt. I really like to, to get out there and see it and read the sign. If it's an early season hunt, like a Kentucky or like this Nevada hunt, preseason scouting doesn't do me so, so much good. You know, it's going to be more of like long distance scouting just prior to the hunt. A lot of glassing. Like when I go to Kentucky, I go two days before the season, I'm glassing bean fields, secluded corners, low spots and fields away from access points, away from roads. So going down there beforehand for an early season hunt doesn't make much sense to me. I got to be there real time. So I'm trying to get that information real time, but a rut hunt, that sign's easily visible. So I, I, I'm at my best when I can get out there beforehand and kind of read the sign. That'll kind of put me in the positions where I think I have the best chance. So this Ohio, the, the Iowa tags, you know, it's a great tag to get. So with just everything invested in it, I want to, put the time that it deserves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Lastly, we have a clip from the most recent episode with Troy Pottinger. This is the section when he goes into detail on the work in the early months of the year, gridding mountains and looking for sheds, but also locations that can become dynamite spots to either leverage existing scrapes or create mock ones. So for me, it's way back, February, March, April, May. That's when I'm laying out, really trying to uh, anticipate and predict where I believe based on all of the information I found on foot, all the past information I have over the years, uh, all the information I just look for in the habitat and all the different combinations of what I need. When I lay those mock scrapes out back in the spring and even late winter, I go back to them and I start checking them once a month in May, June. And they better pick something up by July. I'll give them till the end of July. They usually pick something up good by July. So to answer your question, uh, you know, then it's whether or not I got some potential that I really want to hunt that I put a lot of time into, or if I just got some great up and comers, I just run a camera and keep the scrape going through the year just for them. And I may not even hunt that spot for two or three years till I get a buck in there that I like, but I like the genetics in there. How, how often do you do you not even say need to build a mock scrape because there's already a really good one there and you can just kind of leverage the you know the decades worth of of use to say this is a good spot but I put my cameras right here. The uh, those are like a gold mine, and I and I would say just from lots of years of running mountains and putting so many miles in a lot of times I find them when I'm shed hunting right now and it's just from gridding mountains and pick you know covering a mountain mile by mile by mile every 20 yards you know I'll do mile long two mile long walks drop down 20 30 yards and walk two or three miles back and do the same thing all day but anyway when I find what I consider in the mountain buck a habitat, a gold mine. It's when I find those unbelievable. I've got one that's just unreal. I've got a community scrape that I know when I found it, 
you could just see decades and decades of use. And the location was just unbelievable. It all made sense. Um, and that's a scrape where every year there's a tree stand that never needs to leave that spot. There's a stand site that I have, and it's just unbelievable. Every year you can go back and hunt that stand. For me personally, when I actually find a great community that's been a scrape, a hub scrape that's been there forever, um, it's because the terrain, the food, the water, everything plays into it to funnel the deer through a specific spot. So it just becomes a, you know, a really good intersection, if you will. And in my scenario, in the vast mountains and woods, you want to talk about a needle in a haystack. It's ridiculous. But when you do find one, the evidence will be there. And those are the ones I key in on. And again, if I don't, if I don't have good daylight frequency there, and if I don't have the right kind of bucks, or at least the genetics of young bucks there, and I don't see any potential there, then I'll move on. But usually most of the time, because I am fairly remote and I do get off the beaten path and I do look, I do a pretty darn good job of finding where old whitetail bucks like to hang out and survive. I tend to do pretty good. And a lot of times I'm fairly close to their bedding and I usually end up getting a dandy or two on camera with them, but it's a lot of work. There's a lot of scrapes that have never panned out for me and I just move on. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.